<laughs> Let's open up to Revelation chapter 3. As we continue through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through the book of Revelation on Sunday morning, we find ourselves in chapter 3 with the church of Philadelphia. We'll back up a little bit. We only did a couple of verses. And to the angel of the church, verse 7, of Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the, king of da- the keys of David and who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens, for I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and that no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but they are not, and they lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And here we are today. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come suddenly. Hold fast to what you have and that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more and I will write upon him Hit, uh, uh, write on him the name of my God and the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him a new name. Now, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray today for this day that you would enrich us, Lord, that you would bless us through this topic, Lord, of being removed out of here before the hour of trial. And so, Lord, we look to the blessed hope of the return of Jesus. Lord, again, we have no faith in man, but we put all of our trust in you, not in new administrations or in vaccines or anything else that the world, climate change or anything like that. Our hope is in you, and we know this world is coming to an end. And, Lord, that our trust is in your promises for Lord, your promises are yea and amen. And so we thank you now, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right. Now, as we have gone through the book of Revelation, I keep telling you, I've got all of this information in here, and so I'm asking you right now to pray that that information gets out in a rapid succession of facts and not get bogged down in over here or over here. Amen? Can you just do that right now, Lord? Just just make that work. And the older I get, I ask that all the time. Lord, just make that work. (laughs) So here we go. Last week, we started in this book, or in this chapter, The Church of Philadelphia. And if you haven't been with us, this book of Revelation is really easy to understand, isn't it? How do I know that? Well, it's on the screen. It tells us in chapter 1, right, the things that you've seen. That was chapter 1, the things which are. That's what we're going through right now, the seven letters to the seven churches. And soon we will be out of the seven letters to the seven churches, and then we will see those chapters from 4 on, and that is writing these things which will take place after this. But as we have been in these seven letters to the seven churches, we are applying them four ways. We know that because number one, they are real churches in 90 AD, right? Last week we learned about this real church of Philadelphia. It's not in Pennsylvania. It is in Turkey. But we also learned about the church history of that and that this church represents the modern evangelical Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-reading church that we know today. And I, I make this statement over and over. We continue to think, at least in the church, that the church has always operated the way that it is operating now. That is not the truth. It is not operated that way. It operated one way for 1,500 years until Martin Luther. Then we got choice number two, Protestant churches. And then after that, every flavor under the sun. But it wasn't until the 1800s did we start to see what we know today as the modern church and teaching of that. Because 
what the church did in the beginning from 300 on, that means the Roman Catholic Church, they started to not teach on the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ, the blessed hope that we will see that the early church taught all the way up to about 300 A.D. and then was rediscovered once again, shockingly, when people read their Bibles. Isn't that amazing what happens when people read the Bible? But what happens when churches don't tell people to read the Bible? What happens? Well, then you've got wokeness. That I won't get into that. Hey, I'll use it one time and it'll be... <sighs> but then on that third way, again, these are churches today as we will see that this church is not going to experience this trial that is coming, this great tribulation on planet Earth. And again, we always want to apply this individually into our lives. So how are these seven letters to the seven churches applying to us as we have gone through these churches? Well, just so you know, you want to be this church today. So let's dive into this. We left off at verse 10. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, to hupomone, that's our favorite Greek word, to bear up under, you have kept this command to persevere. I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world and to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, normally, I would dive into the topic of Christ removing his church when we get to chapter 4, because that is the chapter in which we see a break from the seven letters to the seven churches. We see an exodus of the church. The church is not shown anymore until later at the end of the book of Revelation. So, again, using common sense, which is, right, lacking often in this country today, we can deduce that the church is out of the way while God is doing a work, not only in Israel, but with this group of people who are dwellers on the earth. Let's take a look at this, and then we're going we're gonna to go into this topic of the rapture of the church. And by the way, let me just start out by asking that. How many of you, number one, have ever heard of the word rapture? <laughs> Good. Listen, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. How many of you have not? Don't be weird. It's all right. Okay, nobody. That's pretty good. Now, how many of you came out of an organized church or organized religion and never heard about end times teaching, let alone the rapture, until you came to a Bible teaching church like Calvary Chapel? Now, look around the room. And you wonder why the church is in the state that it's in. Because we're going to talk about this topic called the blessed hope. It's in Titus. We're going to read that chapter. So if the Bible talks about something that is blessed, why in the world is the church not talking about it? Well, again, if you know church history, and that is part of my role here is to help you understand church history, the more you know, the more you will understand, well, it was suppressed by the Roman Catholic Church because of certain ways that they wanted to view the world. But let's take a look at this verse 10, and then we'll jump out of here and go look at a bunch of verses. Now, it says that because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, that word persevere is interesting because it's in the past tense in the Greek, and it is showing something that the Christian has already done. So what Jesus is saying is because you have done this in the past, that you have persevered, and what does it mean to persevere? Well, it's right here in verse 8. These, this is what they've done, that God has opened up the door, they've walked through that, they have a little strength, they kept my word, and they haven't denied my name. This is the definition of this modern-day church. And because they have done that, because they have persevered, verse 10, then Jesus is going to do this for us. Again, the promise of a reward is about the past perseverance, not the equipping to pers persevere in the future during this event, uh, as we know is the hour to come. 
And, and, and notice that he says here in, in verse 10, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And there's some definite articles in the Greek, and we don't really speak like this in English, but it's the trial, it's the hour, and it's the people on the earth. It's the dwellers, the, the Greek says. So it seems that this is an event that is future in taking place. But the Greek word from means out of. So you could say it this way. I will also keep you out of the hour which is to come. Again, I believe that the church, and we're going to prove that today, is a group of people who will be, who will be taken out of this hour of temptation or the hour of trial this seven-year period of tribulation, which we will get into detail after chapter 5 of Revelation. I mean, the rest of the book is describing this hour that is to come. And just for a heads up, you don't want to be here. There's a meteor that's going to crash to the earth. Most of the water won't be able... Uh, that's a coming attractions. It's this to say... You don't want to be here. Again, let's talk about this. So Jesus tells us then who will go through the hour of the trial or who will go through this tribulation. Please note with me, we, we still haven't left verse 10. There's a lot there. So he tells us who will go through that hour. It is, it shall come upon the whole earth. But now I know what you're thinking. But isn't that us? Aren't we a part of the whole earth? No. Look at the net, look how he describes that group to test those who dwell on the earth. Again, this test is directed to those who dwell on the earth. This phrase is used some 12 times just in the book of Revelation to describe these people. It's like Jesus says, I know you guys are going to mess this up. And I want to be really clear who this group of people are because I know that some people are going to say, well, the church is going to go through the tribulation or it's going to be mid-trib, post-trib, right? There's going to be all these groups that are going to come up with these ideas. I want everyone to know in these next 12 verses, we're not going to read all 12, that he describes exactly who this group is. Are you ready? There should be, when you leave, when you touch the, you're like, I am so clear about I am not going to be here and who will be here. Those who dwell on the earth refer not to believers, but to unbelievers who object to God's wrath, who have Christ rejected. Now listen, Christians are different. Though we walk on this earth, our dwelling place is in heaven. And the Bible tells us that we have been seated in the heavenly places in Jesus. We do not dwell on the earth. We are like Abraham, who we just learned about in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. It says that he was a dweller in tents. He was a pilgrim in a sojourner. That's how we are to live. This is not our home. This is as bad as it's ever going to get. Can I get an amen? You're like, but that was a bad year. This is as bad as it's going to get. For those who are dwelling on the earth, this is as good as it's ever going to get. So, those who dwell on the earth is a technical term, meaning those who make the earth their home. They have put all of their stock into this earth. Men of the In, in Psalm 17, verse 14, it talks about their portion of this earth. But let me read some of these descriptions in Revelation. Of course, here it says, those who dwell on the earth. Verse uh, 6, verse 10, it says, And they cried aloud with a loud voice, and they said, Lord, how long, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are a, a separate group of people that we're going to talk about. They're, they're called tribulation saints. People are going to get saved during that time, but they're not part of the church. It's, it's a different group of people because the church is gone. 
from here. And those people are asking God, hey, Lord, when are you going to avenge us from those who dwell on the earth? In chapter 11, it says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because the two prophets are tormented to those who dwell on the earth. When we get that, we're going to see there are two witnesses of God that uh, preach and proclaim that this is what God is doing. He is judging the world. He's telling them to repent. Well, at some point, they kill him, and they get a new holiday. I mean, Hallmark's going to be excited. You know, all the made-up holidays they come up with. It's send a gift to a friend because we killed the prophets of God. That's kind of a long long card, but that's what's going to happen. It says, those who dwell on the earth rejoice. Would you rejoice if God's prophets were killed? Okay, we're using our brain. (laughs) Chapter 13, verse 14 says, and he deceives, this is Satan, those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted them to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, to make an image to the beast and who was wounded by the sword. You and I cannot be deceived by the, by the Antichrist. Why? We're not here. Do I sound like a broken record? Verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having an everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth and to every tribe and tongue and people. In chapter 17, lastly, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And those who dwell on the earth, here it is, this is like Jesus just wrapping it all up. Whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world and when they see the beast that was and was not and yet is to come. So at the end of Revelation, it's telling us those who are earth dwellers, this group of people whose names are not written in the book, they're not saved. So it clearly tells us, let's go backwards now, or maybe you're still there. That's right, you're still there. In verse 10, then it says that I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. So I ask you a question today. What are you waiting for? Isn't that a good question? We'll wrap that question up at the end, but I want you to think about that the rest of this message. What are you waiting for? Because in Titus, Paul tells us what we should be waiting for. He says in Titus 2, verses 11 through 13, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What does that mean? It means that everybody has an opportunity to escape what is coming. And you can't then stand before God at some point and say, I never heard. He's going to say, roll tape. You went to Calvary that day when he taught on the rapture. The one and only day you went to Calvary, he taught on the very thing he was telling you to escape from. You chose not to, therefore you go down, you don't go up. Easy, isn't it? For the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, that we should live soberly, right, righteously, and godly in this present age. Here it is. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are you waiting for? Titus tells us. Now, the nature of God is not to judge the righteous with the wicked. And this is what I'm going to lay out for you in the rest of the message, is that there is the biblical proof of a pre-tribulation rapture, the removal of the church, and it is in the Old Testament. Remember, Paul, the early believers, they don't have a complete New Testament yet. It's not done. So what are they going to quote? How are they going to make an argument? Well, Paul, when he's talking to the Thessalonians for three Sundays, he's going to teach them in times, and he's going to teach them from the Old Testament. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to see some New Testament verses, but ultimately I'm going to take you to three examples in the Old Testament that prove 
this statement that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. By the way, before I get into it, amen? Isn't that good news? (laughs) God's word tells us that those who have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ will not experience his wrath. Romans 5 verse 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. We'll be saved from that. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait from the Son of Heaven who raised him from the dead and Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come over in chapter 9 or 5 verse 9 for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ what did he what did he want for us he wants a spirit to be inside of us not the wrath of rejection in chapter 5 verse 10 it says who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him therefore comfort each other and edify each other just as you are doing now i want to make a side note here for those in the church and there are plenty not our church and if you are we'll note you There are plenty inside the church that says the church is going to go through the tribulation period, this wrath of God. Listen, why in the world would Paul say comfort one another if we're going to? That's no comfort, Paul, right? If you and I are supposed to go through a seven-year tribulation period, Paul wouldn't say, hey, guys, just comfort one another with these words that it's going to be hell on earth. What is the comfort? coming out of it. I was thinking about the Titanic. (laughs) Weird how my brain works. But those say that we must go through it. It, It's like the Titanic is going down and there's a life raft right there and his name is Jesus. But we go, no, we got to go down with the ship. What are you? You're not the captain. We don't have to do that if there is a boat available and that's Jesus. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So the word caught up is harpazo in the Greek. Um, In the Latin, it it is um, rapier. Uh, it kind of sounds like a little sword, doesn't it? But it means it's the same definition to violently take up or to snatch away. And the problem I have is that there are those who say the word rapture is not in the Bible. How many of you have heard that before? Rapture is not in the Bible. So therefore, we don't believe it. Do you know how dumb that is? And I say that in a loving Jesus pastoral way. <laughs> There's no Trinity word In the Bible. I guess there's no Trinity then based on their logic, right? But the word is there. If we were to go to a church that doesn't believe in it, I'd plop down a uh, Latin Vulgate Bible and say, there it is. Just because it's not the English word doesn't mean that the context of the meaning is not there, and not only that, is it not all through the Bible, and the theme of being caught up to be raptured out. Again, this is not a new concept in the Bible, the removal of the righteous before God's judgment. It's not new, and God has a pattern, and I love how God does this in his word. He gives us patterns in the Old Testament, so by the time we get to a theme in the New Testament, he can go, It's right there. I've been telling you for thousands of years, this is my nature. And so when Father Abraham says to God in the best dialogue ever in the Bible, can the righteous judge of the universe, is he going to judge the righteous with the ungodly? That's his question. And at the end of this, we'll see the answer to it. So I want to give you three examples 
of the nature of God and dealing with his righteous people. In Genesis chapter 5, there is a guy named Enoch. And Enoch is a type and a picture, as we're going to see here, because he was raptured away. And in fact, we just read this in Hebrews chapter 11, that, that he walked and he pleased God, and then one day God said, you know what, Enoch, man, I really like you. Why don't you just come up and hang out with me? And then the dude's gone. Three, I mean, he's walking with God, right? It says uh, around uh, 300 years old, and then he walks with God for about 60-some years, and God's just like, man, heaven is not going to be heaven without Enoch. We all got Enoch, I love Enoch shirts on up here. So just come on up, buddy. And so he's taken out of the way. There's a couple of things about Enoch I want to I point out because they're important. First, he walked with God. That's what it says. His whole life was lived in a union, in a communion with the Lord. Guys, he had no sad, he had no Sunday religion. He had a personal relationship with the Lord, and he cultivated that every day, moment by moment. He walked in line with God's will and purpose for his life. Secondly, he was commended as one who pleased God. And again, this is redundant from our Wednesday night study a few weeks ago, but first and foremost, his desire was to please the Lord in all things. Every day he gave God the lordship over everything that he said and he did in his life. The Lord was number one and everything else in his life was subject to the Lord. Also, he was one that was looking forward to meeting the Lord. As the writer of the Hebrews says in in Hebrews 9 verse 20, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him and his appearing a second time apart from sin and and for salvation. Thirdly, Enoch lived by faith. By faith, it says, Enoch was taken. The thing that really pleased God was the fact that Enoch walked by faith every day in his life. And what we talked about in Hebrews was that Enoch shows us that you can walk and please God in a world that is worse than the world that we're living in right now. How is that possible? How could a world be any worse than right now? Enoch, because Enoch comes before a guy named Noah. We'll get to him in a minute. The Bible says that without faith, we cannot please God. The word used for faith in both the New and Old Testament implies faithfulness. And that Enoch was faithful to God, living in the time in which he lived in. He was able to walk and to please God and not to be polluted by the things of the world. Enoch not only believed in God, but he believed him. You know, there's a lot of people that believe in Jesus. But do you believe what he said? Do I believe Jesus? Oh, I believe in him. But do you believe in his word? That it brings life, it brings freedom. Whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. Do you believe that? As James said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Enoch's faith was demonstrated by his actions. He did what he believed. It says that he was a preacher of righteousness. I keep dropping my water. Jude also tells us that Enoch also prophesied about the false teachers that would come in the last days. For our purposes, Enoch becomes a type and a picture of the church, and Noah becomes a type and a picture of the Jews who will go through the tribulation period. You see, this flood that God predicted would come upon a godless, violent world. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every posting on Facebook, sorry, I have a new American version. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. These are the days of Enoch. This is the day of Noah. It was a wicked world. It was, a, it was a world filled with 
a huge amount of people living on planet earth. In fact, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, the conditions of the world before the coming of Jesus will be like the conditions of the world before the flood was. And what did that look like? Simply five things. Exploding population, sexual perversion, demonic activity, constant evil in the hearts of men, and widespread corruption and violence in Washington. Wait. <laughs> See that American version, man? It's just, Got to take it out there. Listen, if we don't laugh, we are going to lose our minds. <laughs> the ark is the safe protection that God afforded to Noah and his family to ride out this destructive flood that was coming. Inside of the ark protected them from the wrath of God poured upon the earth and all of its wickedness. But just before the flood and the judgment came, God took Enoch away from it. And so, too, with the church, God will take us away and leave Israel to once again make a choice who they will follow. You see, these are pictures in the Old Testament. And sadly, because the church doesn't read the Old Testament anymore and doesn't, ah, uh, I, I won't go down that path today. But I know of churches who say we will no longer take people through the Old Testament because it doesn't apply to them. And I think, well, then you're missing a whole section of the character of God. Well, number two, and we all love him. Well, maybe you don't. His name's Lot. We got a lot to talk about Lot. Lot comes out of the pages of Genesis chapter 19. But listen to what Jesus said. It was the same as it was in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But that same day that Lot left Sodom, fire and brimstone rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus tells us, and not in this section, we'll see that at the end. Jesus says, look at Noah and look at Lot before my returning. And whatever those days look like <laughs> would give you a clue uh, that we're getting close to that. Now, in the Bible, we are told that Lot was a righteous man. And listen, I don't have time to go into Lot's life, but if you look at him outside of the New Testament, this guy, man, I don't want to call him a jerk, but uh, he's not righteous. And yet, through the lens of the New Testament and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, how many of you are like Lot? <laughs> you got your Old Testament, and then Jesus goes, all right, Dad. I paid for them their sin, <laughs> bring them in. And we proclaim that God is good because of that. You see, Lot was a righteous man, even though he was living in a morally and spiritually degenerative world. He was afflicted with the things that were around him. In fact, 2 Peter 2 tells us, that he was a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man, again Lot, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and he heard. How many of you are tormented by the lawless deeds you see around you every single day? You're in good company with Lot. When the time came for him to leave Sodom, he reluctantly had to be dragged out. I don't get this about Lot. I, I'm going to sit down. We'll have some falafel in heaven. But like, what was going on in that town? They pull him out of that town. Well, maybe to some degree he had a lot of attachments to the world like many believers do today. Maybe he had a prominent position in the city. Maybe he had many material, well, blessings. However, because of Abraham, and this is what you don't know, because what's going on behind the scenes of Lot is a conversation between Father Abraham and Father God. <laughs> and they're having this, if there are 50 righteous in Sodom, will you destroy? No, I'm not going to blow it up for 50. 
and he whittles him down to 10. Anybody figure out why? If I was Abraham, I'd be like, let's go with one. Listen, it's because Lot had a wife and he had daughters, and he's thinking, at least he's going to be able to get 10 out of there. But there wasn't. And so God's mercy upon Lot and rescuing him from the wrath that fell on Sodom and the other cities of the plain. That very same day that Lot was taken out of the city, the fire rained down. The angel says, we can't do anything until you are gone. We can't pour the wrath of God upon this city until, Lot, you're out. That's why they're dragging him. Like, do you see the fire? Come on, buddy. Get out. You know, the Bible is interesting because it it does say, I'm going to paraphrase, that some are saved even by fire. And like Lot's that guy's like, whoa, what was that? That was fire, Lot. Some people are barely making it into heaven. And I'm okay with that. And they'll be fine. They'll have a little beanie propeller hat. They'll, they'll be happy as a clam. They won't know that they barely <laughs> singed getting in. That was Lot. What are you waiting for? Remember how we started today? Let's keep going with this guy because he's just funny. When we see God sending down fire from heaven upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have a picture of the wrath of God being poured, on, uh, being poured out upon a godless world. And at the end of this present age, we will see that again. Again, Lot is a type and a picture of a faithful remnant that will be rescued just before the fire falls. And in the last days before Jesus come back, there will be a remnant. That's the church of Philadelphia. And we too will be rescued before the fire comes down. In fact, it says in 1 Peter 4, 18, And if the righteous are scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly sinner appear? The idea is if the Christians barely get out of the way, what's going to happen to the rest of them? There will be some who won't make it out of here. Micah was asking me, Dad, what are we calling the message today? And I said for the internet, get right or get left. And the example of getting left, now that's not political, don't go down that path. (laughs) Or don't think if you're in California, you got to go to the right coast. We won't go there. But the idea is that someone didn't make it in this historical count of Lot. And who was it? It was Lot's wife. You see, her heart was in the world. She was thinking only of saving her life in this world, and she still had the things of the world in her heart. Why? How? Let me say this way. Why did it take so long for God to use Saul, who turns out to be Paul? And it literally is 14 years because God needed all of Saul out so he could use Paul, the one with a little strength. God can work through that. The problem is Lot's wife, she longed for the city that was about to be destroyed. Possibly she was hungering for the social life, her position and standing in the community. Maybe she was thinking about that dress shop or that cafe or the community or the thing and thinking those people aren't that bad. Aren't they good people? (laughs) It seems she really loved and hungered after the good life that she had in this world. And yet she was choosing the wrong path. She decided to turn around and she became a pillar of salt. And for Abraham's sake, and because Abraham had interceded for the righteousness and for, the, and for his nephew Lot, God took Lot out and his two daughters. So like Lot, the church is pulled out right before the fire comes down. 
Lot is a picture of the church in that the church is surrounded by moral failure of the people, of the governments that they see every day, but like Lot, they have very little effect on the wave of depravity. I was talking to someone just recent, excuse me, about that, that, and I know we have political people in the room, so no one be offended, all right? You know I'm an equal opportunity offender anyway. But don't be offended. Listen, there's really not a whole lot we can do right now in the political realm. There's just not, because we have too many spineless people in D.C. that are supposed to be on our side. And unless we get other people in there, that'll be in about two years from now, Really, there's not a whole lot we can do except for pray for this event to happen. So, everybody, turn off the news for the next two years. Just check out and be filled with God's word. Last example, one of my favorite. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we have a couple of players inside of this scene in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have Nebuchadnezzar, and we have Daniel. Remember Daniel? His name's on the book. And they're all Jewish young boys who have not defiled themselves with the king's delight, right? They prove that in chapter 1. And so this situation becomes a type and a picture of the end times and how Nebuchadnezzar becomes this type and picture of Antichrist. You see, during the tribulation, Antichrist will demand worship from everyone. That's in Revelation chapter 13. And when the true faithful nation of Israel learns who this Antichrist is, they will refuse to bow down to that image that is made. Nebuchadnezzar makes this giant image and he tells everybody, hey, listen, when you hear the disco music, everybody bow down and fall down and worship before. Now, can you imagine this? We're out in the plane there. It's huge. Everybody, the music's going. Big, huge God. Nebuchadnezzar's over here on his throne. The entire group falls down, except for three guys way in the back. Three guys. What are they doing? And this whole scene, I encourage you to go read it today. It's wonderful. The king just loses his mind, doesn't he? He just gets mad. And they say to him, listen, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm shortening it up. They, they eventually, the three boys come to them and he says, listen, don't you guys know the government mandate? Right? Don't you know that we government know better than you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So here's the deal. When we tell you to do something, you do it, or we're going to throw you in the fire. Or wait, maybe you won't be able to buy or sell or get on an airplane. Or lose your job. Or whatever. Oh, that would be fun to teach, but not today. That's coming. So they say to him, oh, king, live forever. They're giving him respect, aren't they? And they say, listen, here's the deal. Um, We're not going to bow. And if you throw us in the fire, okay, either our God is going to save us or we win anyway and we go to home with him. So on either case, we're not bowing. Three boys standing up in front of, let's just say two, 300,000 people. What are these boys teaching us? that you can be in the minority and be right against the government. Oh, that'll preach in 1776. You'll get that later. So here they are. What does he do? He loses his mind. Turn up the fire seven times hotter, right? And as they're going, he bounds them up. And as they're going to throw them in, the fire leaps out of the furnace and, and devours the guys that were throwing him in. That's God's sense of humor. But listen to what they do. They go, well, I guess God's protecting us and walk away. No, what did they do? They jumped into the fire. Then the king says, hey, didn't we throw three boys into the fire? And they're like, yeah, but I see four 
walking around loosed and the fire is not burning them. And one of them looks like the son of man. It's wonderful, isn't it? Now these boys and the example in Daniel 3 are teaching us that God is going to be with the Jewish nation through the tribulation time, right? That's what we're learning. But there's somebody missing from this whole historical account. And what is it? Where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? Remember, Daniel is one of Nebuchadnezzar's chief advisors. Does anyone think that Daniel was standing next to Nebuchadnezzar bowing before the image? Here's a guy who later on says, you're going to tell me I can't pray? I'm going to open up the window and I'm going to show everybody that I'm praying to the one and only God. So where is Daniel? You see, if Israel are the young boys and Nebuchadnezzar is the Antichrist, where is Daniel and the church in all of this? And the answer is right. Does that make sense? It means it's exactly what you think it is. You see, when you read chapter 2, verse 48, Daniel is, he has become such a high official that we don't read about him after that verse until God deals with Nebuchadnezzar later on in Daniel. Oh, this is where the chills come. These are fun things. So you get Daniel that's mentioned in chapter 2. Then we see this, he, he isn't mentioned until the end. But in the middle, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you've got Nebuchadnezzar as the Antichrist. And until God deals with Nebuchadnezzar, remember he makes him into a cow, and he eats grass all over. Oh, read Daniel. You'll love it. And at the end, then he shows up again. Isn't that the book of Revelation? You see, Daniel is not thrown in the fire because he is away on the king's business. The reason we will not go through the great tribulation with Israel is because we too are doing the king of kings business. And so it proves right away from the mouth of Abraham from Genesis chapter 18. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Verse 23. Abraham came near and he said, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? He's talking to the almighty God. He said, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. Listen, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. This is Abe. Talking to God. I mean, they got a good relationship, don't they? When you can talk to God this way, I don't recommend it. <laughs> but he is Father Abraham. And so he says, far be it from you. Notice, shall not the judge of all the earth do what? Right. You see, guys, this question that gets bounced around inside of the church is as old as Father Abraham. And it was answered to us thousands of years before Paul even writes 1 Thessalonians 4 that we will be caught up in the air and to ever be with the Lord. So therefore, comfort one another with these words. And now we're back to Revelation 3.10 when he tells the church of Philadelphia, because you have you have persevered, I will keep you from the hour which is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And then he says it in the next verse, Behold, I come suddenly. That's what it means. 
Now, I know we sing Jesus is coming soon, and I don't want to go on some doctrinal thing yet, and that is true, but it's really Jesus is coming suddenly at any moment. It is the blessed hope. And the sad thing that happened inside of church history is that when the imminent return of Christ or what we know is the snatching away, the removal was put down in Scripture and then wasn't rediscovered until the 1800s. Please don't let anybody tell you that John Darby invented the rapture of the church. The books that we have will tell you and quote church fathers all the way up into the 300s that will tell you they believed in it. They believed in the snatching away. They believed that like Lot, like Daniel, like Enoch, that they would not experience the wrath of God. And so he says, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. That was the victor's crown. They didn't get gold medals back then. They got a plant on their head. They just got a little reef. Like today, you know, they got the gold. It's like worth a lot of money and Nope, they got a crown. It was the victor's crown. And he tells us in verse 12, he who overcomes. It's one of our favorite words to define the church through these seven letters, the overcomers, because there's an overcomer through all of the churches, amen? He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him a new name. Wonderful, isn't it? And then as he ends every letter to the seven churches, how many people got ears today? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The church of Philadelphia must not depart from its solid foundation. Its solid foundation was this. Evangelistic opportunity, I have an open door for you. Reliance on God, you have a little strength. Faithfulness to Jesus, that you have kept my word and not denied my faith, or my name. And when we do this, Jesus declares, I will pull you out before the fire drops. You see, that's a promise. And if I was standing here just on the New Testament, right, it'd be a harder case to make. I could still make it because there are plenty in the New Testament verses to describe the rapture of the church. By the way, that's what these books go into. They're wonderful. They describe every verse in the New Testament that talks about the rapture of the church, the harpazo, the catching away. And so, what are you waiting for? Our response now that we've gone through this message should be Jesus. Because that's what the church used to do. Before it got all religious and robed up and templed up and stained glassed up and pewed up and whatever up, before it diverted away from the message of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus, that Jesus alone and faith alone will save you. When it went to religion, they moved away from this. What are you waiting for? Because this world's not getting better. It's getting worse, but it is all falling into place. And I don't know how long we have, I was telling someone yesterday, the danger of going through a year like 20, what year was that? Nightmare, 2020 and 19. The danger of going through that is the church can get all hyper Jesus is coming right now. Now, I have to be careful because there are a lot of people that are really focused on that right now. But see, if you have a balanced view, like I believe that we should, we think about it all the time, not just to one event. Oh, yes, Saudi Arabia is doing something very interesting right now that's going to play into prophecy in Ezekiel 36, 37, 38. It's interesting to watch what they're doing. But we need to, as Jesus said, occupy until I come. That means we build 
Arrowwood camp expecting kids to come and get saved. People, men and women to come to retreats and get saved. All along waiting for, knowing the times and the seasons, being prepared for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are you waiting for? <laughs> I've told you, I told Jesus a couple of, uh, maybe yesterday or just like as I come in the door, Lord, let me not teach another sermon. Let's just go home. I don't need, to, I don't need another one in my belt. Let's just go home. I don't want another election. <laughs> Let's just go home. But not my will be done, but yours. So then I'm going to be faithful into what you called me to do. And that's what this city of Philadelphia is all about. When there's an open door, go through it. When God brings someone in your life to share Jesus, you tell them. You don't deny his name, no matter what the government tells you to do no matter when they tell you to close or not close. If your job tells you you have to get this or that, maybe you need to get a different job. I don't know. Ask God. Don't ask me. Listen, as I said last week, government is not always right. And as we've seen through man's history, government is actually mostly wrong. And the disciples had to deal with this in Acts 4. They couldn't even get to the fifth chapter before government coming upon them and telling them to deny Jesus. Hey, you guys don't teach about Jesus. And Pete said, hey, if it's right in the sight of God or in the sight of man, we will not stop proclaiming Jesus. I say this in our time. We will not stop meeting. We will not forsake the assembly of the body of Christ. Lastly, I was listening to John Corson on an amazing radio station, by the way, that we have here. That's right, 101.5, shout it out. Free T-shirts in the back. But he was saying something, and you know, you know this happens all the time. I say it all the time. You're listening to something, someone's teaching, and it goes click. And you go, wait a minute. I've never seen that before. And it was on a topic that wasn't on my topic, but it was like, ding. So Corson is teaching out of Genesis. And he's talking about God bringing Eve to Adam and the relationship. And we know what it says, that it's good that man should not be alone, right? And then I went, wait a minute. That's exactly what you're saying about not forsaking the assembly of the body of believers. It's not good for you to be locked in your home away from this group of people. Do you guys know that we are human beings and we need tactile? We thrive on that. If you don't believe me, look at the research of people in solitary confinement. This organism, crazy as it is, needs to be together, needs to touch one another, needs to encourage one another and lift each other up, and we can't do that on a couch. That's why... <laughs> we will do exactly what this chapter tells us. We will walk through the open door. We will not, not deny the name of Jesus. And we just got a little strength to do it in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the little strength. We thank you for this church of Philadelphia, Lord. We're just excited to see what you're doing in the lives of your people, healing people, Lord, in their marriages and with their jobs, depression, wherever someone is today, Jesus is the answer. Not a pill, not a drug. It's Jesus. Let the church operate how the church is supposed to operate and how the church has been operating for 2,000 years until just recently. Lord, give us the strength to stand up. Even though... <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't, uh, are not the type of the church, but that we would have the strength like those three boys. They say, whether or not it's right in the sight of you, O King Nebuchadnezzar, 
our God will either take us out of the fire or protect us through it. But to him be the glory, not government. So we thank you, Lord, for our day today. We thank you for all your blessings, your grace, the blood upon the cross that washes us clean, and the empty tomb that gives us eternal life. Thank you again, Lord, for those serving. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.